it was just pointed out to me, it is true. We should, it's like a little social experiment. Um, when I was in youth group, whenever we would disperse paperwork of any kind, handout, handouts, or whatever, uh, the students always thought that by me passing out papers, that was like, oh, we can talk now. And I've realized, it was just pointed out to me, that that doesn't change as we get older, because as soon as everybody started talking, it was great. So, But all right, Romans chapter 5. And we're going to start in verse 1 in just a few moments. But uh, for those of you that are new with us tonight or haven't been there in a few weeks, uh, we have been going through a study on the book of Romans. And we are kind of going verse by verse, but sometimes more kind of chunk of passage by chunk of passage, trying to go through the book. And so we started a few weeks ago. And what you have in front of you, uh, we give out an outline for every chapter. Uh, It's not a super exhaustive outline. It's really more of an outline to kind of highlight the main key areas of that chapter. And so every chapter you'll get one of these. If you have not been with us or you're missing a chapter here or there, please see me. Okay, we can definitely copy these off. I would love for you guys to have all of the book of Romans in an outline form. Throw it in like a manila folder at home. And now you've got it as a resource to maybe study for yourself. Uh, This is not meant read the outline and go, okay, I'm good. This is kind of also a springboard. You might start here on this outline and go a little deeper in this area or a little deeper over here than what we have time for tonight. And so I encourage you to have that with you. Um, we do it as a full outline, so you don't need fill in the blank stuff. You can have all the material with you. So not getting too far into this, but we are going to go ahead and start Romans chapter 5. And so uh, we're going to read the first 11 verses. So Romans 5, 1 through 11. Um, and I love to have other people read, uh, especially on Sunday nights. And so if I can get two volunteers, maybe reading uh, 1 through 5 and then 6 through 11. So I need one person to take 1 through 5. Okay, Kelsey. And then 6 through 11. Okay, Mary. Awesome. All right. So Romans 5, 1 through 5. Go ahead, Kelsey. Okay, so there's a couple of verses in there, specifically one that's part of Romans Road, the Romans Road. What verse in there is part of what we call the Romans Road or the way in which you could take some verses from Romans to share Christ with somebody? Right, verse 8, right? Uh, To me, that is one of the most powerful verses, not only in the book of Romans, but in the Word of God. And the, the reason it's so powerful, and we'll get to it in a little bit here, is, is while we were yet, man, that's powerful. 
Not after we got cleaned up, after we took care of ourselves, we got, you know, sort of righteous. In the very moment we were fully in our sin, and we liked it, right? We were in our sin, we were happy in our sin, we were content in our sin. Did we even want the light of the gospel in our sin? Why doesn't, why doesn't humanity want the light of the gospel when we're in our sin? Why do we reject the light? Okay, for no man seeks after God. Yeah. Yeah. It's so funny that when we were in Vegas a few years ago, uh, Sin City, okay, we went to do a youth camp in Anaheim, and we started in Vegas with the church there. And we went to the Strip one night because we had to go to the Strip because, I mean, you're not going to go to Vegas and not at least see it. We went on a Monday night at like 9 o'clock at night with some college kids in the church. And it was the craziest. I mean, some of the stuff you see out there, I was just like, it's Monday night at 10.30. This is insane. But what's amazing is I was talking to some of the kids and I said, man, it seems like it's just always crazy here. And he said, you know, it's funny. Everywhere sins, right? Every city in America sins. Everybody in every city sins. He said, but in America, everybody comes to Vegas to sin because they think it's okay to sin here. They're totally okay. They would never do some of the things they do in Vegas back home, but I can do it because I'm I'm not home, right? I'm in Vegas. And what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? But it's so funny. So we'll go, in some ways, we'll be very fluid, flaunted, right, about, about our sin. We'll just kind of put it out there. I don't care if you see it or not. But yet when the gospel shows up and starts to reveal the depths and the darkness of our heart, we reject that. But yet five minutes before that, we're over here like, yeah, I'm sinning. I'm good. And so it's funny to me that we'll kind of flaunt it in one area when we feel like everyone else is doing it, Everyone else is okay with it. But when we're exposed to the light of the gospel, it reveals something inside of us. And I think that's the scary part to us as human beings. I think when I'm sitting over here and it's this outside thing, it's kind of outside of me, the sin that I'm committing. I don't necessarily feel like it's really me. It's just, well, I'm doing this because everyone's doing it. I'm doing it because it's what we're all doing. But when we get before the gospel, it, it reveals something in, in the depths of me as a person that I realize sin is not just something out here. Sin, sin is something in here, right? Remember, Jesus died on the cross to save sinners, right? Not to just get rid of sin, but to save a sinner. And so the gospel light reveals I'm broken inside. That's why I think we can be very kind of just okay with our sin over here, but yet when the gospel light shines up, we say, no, I don't want that. I don't want to be, I don't think it's so much that we don't want it revealed to others. That could be part of it. I think it's, I don't want it really revealed to me how dark and, and broken I really am inside. I think that's why the gospel is offensive. Not because it's going to reveal to someone else that I'm a sinner, but it's going to reveal to myself, first and foremost, how much of a sinner I am. And so that's why that verse, verse 8, is so powerful to me. Because Christ, in our sin, died for us. He gave his life for us, and we weren't, even, we weren't even wanting it. We weren't even looking for it. In your outline there, uh, it starts off by saying, uh, one of the most calming and joyful verses we will read in the book of Romans is Romans 5.1. Romans 5.1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. To me, that's one of the most calming joyful verses to realize by faith I've been justified with God through Jesus Christ. And because I'm now justified, 
And some of you remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about that word justified. And I said, there's a common thing we hear about justified. People have always said it really means this, or it could be said like this. And then I said there was something from our men's Bible study that I liked that we kind of tied in. So does anyone know what, when we say I've been justified, what's that common phrase we hear with that in the church? Just as if I've never sinned, right? It's pretty common. We've heard that a lot. It's true. When I'm in Christ, I'm innocent. My sin is not held to my account. The righteousness of Christ is given to me or credited to me. But I love what our men's Bible study said a few weeks ago. It's not just as if I've never sinned. It's also just as if I've always obeyed. It's not just, hey, you were guilty and now you're not guilty anymore. It's actually, yeah, you were guilty, but now you look like you've lived your entire life faithful to God. Sinless. And so it helps us to take a step closer to understanding what the cross and what the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ really makes available to us. It's not just, I used to be a sinner and I'm not anymore. It's now, it's actually, no, I've actually always obeyed God. Now, how is that possible? Because Jesus Christ obeyed God in all things. He was sinless, and that's given to us. And so, the fact that I have peace with God, man, I, I think that's such a calming reality, especially in our world today, is it not? And do we have peace in our politics? Do we have peace in our finances all the time? Do we have peace in our careers? Stock market? How about other people? Maybe time to time, right? But there's times where, guess what? Even in your own home, there's going to be conflict. There may not be peace in every moment. But do you know that when God says, you have peace with me, the only time we aren't experiencing his peace in our lives is when we decide to walk away. When we decide to focus on sin, he doesn't change. He's not like, nope, now I have an issue with you. No, there's peace there. Now, when I sin before him, what's the issue? I need to correct some things. I need to change some things and get back to where I need to be. But his grace is still there. We have peace with God that can never be taken away. Now, in the moment of me sinning, it can seem like it's not there, but is it still there if I'm in Christ? Absolutely it is. And so here we understand this peace with God is not dependent on you as far as gaining it. You didn't gain peace with God because of what you did. You gained peace with God because he gave himself for you. Through Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. Even justified by faith, that's nothing to do with you. And you might say, well, wait a minute, but I put my faith in Christ. Yeah, because he allowed you to do that. Because he offered it to you. You merely just agreed with what he had already done. And so we got to be careful there. It's all about him. We are merely responding to what he's already done for us. Uh, Paul begins, and this again is in your outline there. Paul begins with, therefore, and explains the benefits of being, justifi of being justified, that should say justified, by faith in Christ. Paul begins with therefore and explains the benefits of being justified by Christ. When somebody sees the word therefore in Scripture, what are we supposed to ask? What's it there for, right? What happened before? What happened before is everything we covered from Romans chapter 1, right? What does Romans chapter 1 establish about halfway through the chapter to the end? Who's guilty before God in Romans chapter 1? What group of people? Not the Jews, the Gentiles. Chapter 2, who's guilty before God? Jews, okay. And then chapter 3, who's guilty before God? 
everyone, the whole world. Then he gets into chapter 4, and he uses some Old Testament examples of Abraham and David and talking about, well, how did they receive the blessings of God? How did they receive the inheritance? How did they receive these great blessings of the Father? By faith, right? Over and over again, by faith, by faith, by faith. Then he gets to Romans 5, 1, he says, therefore, being justified by faith. It's not a brand new argument. He just spent four chapters establishing how we're all guilty before God. We all need salvation. We can't get salvation without faith. And when we put our faith in Christ, we're justified and made clean. Now, here's the benefits of that. Here's the result of that. Here's the fruits of that justification by faith. Um, goes on to say here in your notes, uh, there are two phrases we have to notice in these 11 verses. And we're going to break these down here as we read through, as those guys read through. Uh, we have and we shall be. Those are the two phrases you see kind of repeated. We have and we shall be. First, being justified by faith, we have something. And then being now justified, we shall be something. One, one phrase has to do with the present and the other with the future. One phrase has to do with the present and the other with the future. Alvin McLean uh, wrote a commentary on the book of Romans. And uh, he expounds in his commentary on the 12 blessings that go with justification using being justified as the key phrase. Okay, so being justified by faith, and what's the opposite of being justified by faith? To try to be justified by works. Can I be justified by works? No. Why? Because you can't. I like that. That's good. Let's move on. That was a great answer. Because you can't. Love it. Great debate tactic. I love that. Okay, no argument there. Why can't we be justified by works? Okay, I'm not good enough, so therefore my works can't be good enough. Okay, that's great. Why else can't we be justified by works? Okay, our works aren't perfect. What's God's standard? Perfection, holiness, right? Sinlessness. The minute we sin, right, we've already failed. So the good works we do, are they really good works apart from Christ? No, because they're... they're kind of through the lens or perverted by sin, right? Absolutely. What does the Bible say our good works are like before a righteous and holy God? Filthy rags, okay? Um, I think all the children have stepped out, right? Yeah, okay. Uh, I don't like to say this in a setting where there's children. Does anyone know what those filthy rags actually literally translate to? Okay, menstrual rags is actually the, the, the most accurate way to translate that. And so I want you to imagine Christmas is pretty close. And you decide you're going to get someone a gift. And you put that in a box. And you wrap it up and tie a bow on it. It's beautiful packaging. And you put it under the tree. <clears throat> Can't wait for them to open that. And they open that on Christmas morning. You know what the Bible says? You know what the Bible says about the stench before God's nostrils? It makes him want to vomit. When we come before him in our pride, in our sin, but we think we're righteous, he says it turns his stomach. He wants nothing to do with it. And so when we think in that regards, that's, by the way, that's what we think our good works will get us. And that's the result of that. What's our sin before a holy God? We think our good works, and God says, that's filthy rags. Man, our sin, it's just vile. And yet we think our good works will do something, and it won't. It'll bring us nothing but wrath, right? Romans 2 talked about that quite in depth. So we have and we shall be. 
Okay, and in his commentary, I, I kind of took these 12 things from that commentary because I thought it was perfect, the way he summarized and kind of simplified this, these 11 verses. And so uh, being justified by faith is the beginning of all 12 of these. So for example, being justified by faith, uh, we have peace with God. Okay, we kind of explained that a little bit already. Uh, we were enemies of God. Now there is peace. Man, I must have been having some horrible typing experience. I guess, yeah. Kelsey didn't have anything to do with this. This was me typing it, I guess, a little too fast. So, so just, this is me. Oh, wow. Okay. So I thought I proofread it. So we were enemies of God. Now there is peace. Note what the passage says. Who is whose enemy? Is God our enemy? We are enemies of God. Now, I just said, we didn't want anything to do with God, though, right? We rejected him. We, we, we put our fists to his face. But yet, from God's point of view, those outside of Christ, he says, you're my enemy. It's not that I think, you think I'm yours. No, no, you're mine. You're on the complete other side of this thing. And what's crazy is when we see that, we don't really understand that because we think, but God should love me and God should be okay with me. This is why if you ever witness to somebody and you get them to understand their sin— and they'll say, yeah, I know I'm a sinner. Yeah, I know I've done bad things. And you'll say, okay, so you stand before God one day and you're in your sin and you know you've sinned, right? Yes, I know I've sinned. Okay, so what's a holy God gonna do? Is, are you getting into heaven or are you being sent to hell? And they'll look at you square in the face and say, heaven. What? What do you mean? Well, because God is love. And since God is love, he'll look past my sin and he'll let me into heaven because he's love. This is, they don't really understand that apart from Christ, we are actually enemies of God. Now, does God love his enemies? You know, it's amazing. When Jesus said, love your enemies, pray for enemies, serve your enemies, he said that and he did that. Think about this. When he did anything, when he healed someone that didn't really believe or wasn't in Christ, guess what he was doing? He was loving his enemies. When he sat with the Pharisees and gave them opportunity after opportunity to repent of their sin and trust in Christ, he loved his enemies. So whenever Jesus says to do something, we can never look at Jesus and say, but you don't understand. You know the greatest thing that he did to show love for his enemies? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I mean, these people are nailing him to a cross. Father, would you forgive them? They know not what they do. So when Jesus says, love your enemies, and you say to him, but you don't know what they did to me. I can almost imagine Jesus just chuckling. Yeah, you're right. I can't, I can never understand the depth at which you've been betrayed. I can't even fathom it. And this man was a son of God, God himself in flesh, and betrayed over and over again. But yet he says, love your enemies. And so when Jesus offered himself on the cross, as Romans 5.8 tells us, he was loving his enemies in the greatest form of love, which was he laid down his life. Right? And his hope is what? Why did he give himself on the cross? So that we would come to know Christ and receive repentance from sin. So first uh, blessing that he points out here is we have peace with God. Uh, also in the passage we read, we have access by faith into his grace. Uh, we are given his sufficient grace. It is sufficient. It is full. It is complete. The grace of God does not just save us, Right? It sustains us. I don't just know his grace to be saved. He keeps me in his grace, which leads to the next one. Number three, we have a standing in grace. We stand or live in his grace. 
I don't just have access to him by grace and to his grace. I stand in grace. Every moment that I am on this planet with breath in my lungs, it's by his grace. I stand in his grace. I have access by faith into his grace, and the grace is sufficient. So when I pray something that God doesn't answer with a yes, his grace is sufficient. Right? I, don't, I don't get the right to then question God's goodness or his love for me because he's not an on-demand God. His grace is sufficient. When I don't understand, grace. Number four, <clears throat> we have joy or rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We have joy or rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. There is a hope and a guarantee in God. I know I can trust in him and I rejoice in that hope. That hope is not I wish on a star kind of hope, right? It's not I hope one day I'll get to heaven. No, it's a guarantee. I hope in the confident hope of Christ. Number five, we glory in tribulations. We glory in tribulations. The word glory is the same as rejoice. So when we go through difficult times, we rejoice. The truth is, though, an unsaved person cannot actually rejoice in tribulations. Right? They can see the point in it. They can believe all things happen for a reason. But the joy we experience in a tribulation, an unbeliever cannot experience that because we have the joy and the hope and the guarantee that even though this is a difficult time, God is greater that there's something better, that this isn't all there is. So we have a joy and we can rejoice in difficult times. When you read some of this in Romans 5, another chapter in the New Testament should kind of, it's very similar. Can anyone think of a chapter in the New Testament that's similar when it says here, um, verse 3 of Romans 5, and not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation works patience and patience experience and experience hope. Hope makes not a same. James right? My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse or various trials. Knowing this, I don't take joy in the trial because of the trial, right? I take joy in what I know the trial is going to do by God's grace into my life, which is what? Produce these fruits, these things, experience, patience, a growth and hope and an understanding that God is with me. And so when you read that there, Paul again is writing to an early church, writing to a church that's under persecution. Uh, the early church was persecuted greatly by the Roman Empire. And yet constantly read things like, hey, but don't give up on God because he's not giving up on you. Don't let what you see happening around you change your view of God. And I, I'm telling you, we as Christians today, I know there's things happening in our world today. I know there's things happening in our nation today. I know there's things happening in our globe, okay, or globally that are happening today. Brothers and sisters are losing their lives for the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we don't let that dictate to us who our God is. We say, no, I'm going to rejoice in the tribulation no matter what it may cost me. Number six, we have a hope that makes not ashamed. A hope that makes not ashamed. Uh, we cannot help but speak of the hope in us. Peter says this, right? Be always willing to give an answer for the hope that lies in you. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, 17 talks about this, right? What does Paul say? I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, we've said this before. Paul saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel is like, I don't know, Pastor Greg saying, I'm not ashamed of the University of Michigan football program, okay, or whatever. What I mean is, 
it's pretty obvious that Pastor Greg is a fan and supports and loves U of M football and sports, right? Maybe the Tigers, any other local team. Nobody has to tell him, now, hey, listen, don't be ashamed of that. He's, it's obvious. He's like, no, I, I'm all about that. Okay? If you're a talented musician, you love music, you love playing an instrument, no one has to tell you, hey, don't be ashamed of that. It's, it's just an overflow of your passion. Paul is saying this, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's not because people are like, Paul, you're being ashamed. It's almost like he's kind of being a little ironic here, and he's saying, it's so obvious that I'm not ashamed because it is the power of God unto salvation for the Jew first and also the Gentile. And so when we're reading this here again, when Paul says we have a hope that makes us not ashamed, he's not saying you should all do that. He's saying, no, no, this is why I'm not ashamed. This is why I told you in chapter 1 why I'm not ashamed, because of the hope that I have in Christ. It goes on to say this and also verse or number 7. Uh, we have the love of God shed abroad in our hearts. We have the love of God shed abroad in our hearts. What this is speaking about is we have an experience of the love of God. It's not just a knowledge of God's love. We've experienced God's love. It is shed abroad in our hearts. It is, it is obvious to us because we've experienced firsthand the love of God in our lives. Number eight, uh, we also, according to this passage, we have the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is the first time in the book of Romans the Holy Spirit is mentioned. Um, we do not have to look forward or ahead to a future time of receiving the Spirit. We have him at the moment of justification. Right? It's important we know this. Paul says here, and let me see here, verse 5, And hope makes not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. We cannot disconnect justification through faith in Christ and the giving by God of the Holy Spirit to the church, to the believers. Because the very love of God that we have, should have brought in our hearts, is given to us by the Holy Spirit. And that love of God is found where? In the gospel, which we put our faith in to receive justification. It's all one and the same. The Holy Spirit is given to the believer at the moment of justification, which is the moment of faith. Again, Ephesians chapter 1, you are sealed unto the day of redemption by his Spirit, right? What precedes that? Once you believe, you are sealed. Jesus Christ does what he does on the cross. We now believe that. We are sealed unto the day of redemption. That sealing is not six months after we're saved. We don't have to pray for the sealing. We don't have to pray for this extra filling. No, no, no. Salvation, justification, sealing. It's all one and done in the same. And that is why Paul says here, it's given to us. Who's the us? The church, the believers, those who have been justified. And so we've been given the Holy Spirit. And again, it's interesting, Paul gets chapter 5, verse 5, before he even brings up and mentions by name the Holy Spirit. So again, it's interesting it took him this long to get into the book before he does that. But again, that shouldn't surprise us because the whole time to this point, he's building a case for what? The need for Christ. Now that we have Christ, now we can talk about the power and the benefit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Number nine, we have the proof of God's love because Christ died for us. Uh, we don't have to wonder if he loves us. He proved it through the cross, death, burial, and resurrection. Number 10, now we're kind of transitioning into the we are. We are going or shall be, right? We are going or we shall be, according to the, however your translation would translate that, saved from wrath. We are going and shall be saved from wrath. We have gracious immunity from wrath to come. The way I would say it is this way. When you put your faith in Christ, you were saved, right? Justified by faith. 
So for some of you, that was as a child, a teenager, an adult, whenever that was, you put your faith, you were saved in that very moment. Right now, as you sit in this room, you are being saved, right? He's still holding on to you, still keeping you. And one day you'll leave this world and you will be saved. And so the wrath to come, that Romans 2 talks about being poured out on the unbelievers, that wrath, we don't fear that wrath because we have confident hope we will be saved from that wrath to come. Number 11, we are going to be saved by his life. By his life, it says. Um, This is the future guarantee that the salvation we have is secure because he is not dead but alive. Again, tying it to number uh, 10. He is not dead. He is alive. We have been saved and will be saved. It's not like we were saved when he was alive on earth, then he died, and that was it. He's still living today, and that's what Romans 5.10 talks about, right? For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Okay? How is that written? Past tense or present tense? Present tense. By his life right now. He is still alive. Praise God. This is why we can go to Buddha's tomb. We can go to any other religious leader's tomb on the planet and see the bones and see the evidence. This is where the body's laid. But when you come to Jesus Christ, they have to say, well, we kind of think this may have been where he was because there's nothing in there. It's empty. We kind of think this was the tomb he was in. And so again, every couple of years, um, I see these little specials on History Channel. You ever see these? Uh, Supposedly, we found the body of Jesus Christ. You watch the whole thing. Well, we think it was a first century Jewish man. Well, is it Jesus or is it just a Jewish man from the first century? Well, we don't know for sure, but we think it might have been Jesus. We don't really know for sure, though. Okay, so you don't know, but every couple of years you see this. But yet, there's never been one ounce of definitive proof they've ever found the body of Christ. 2,000 years later. Now, let me ask you a question. If you're an atheist or somebody who hates God or someone who's to prove Christianity wrong, what's the first thing you're going to endeavor to do with your entire life's work is find the body of Jesus Christ? And they've never done it. And so again, when you see this here, we should take great praise in that he is alive and well, seated on the right hand of the throne of the Father, and he's praying for us, which is amazing. The 12th blessing, according to this commentary, uh, is we rejoice in God. We are not afraid of God. Can I rejoice in God if I am an enemy of God? If I'm an enemy of God, and I find out who God is, what's my response going to be to that joy? What's that? What am I going to feel? If, if I'm the enemy of God, I know God's this powerful being, and I'm his enemy, what am I going to feel? What's, what emotions? Fear, okay. What kind of fear? Worry, okay. What kind of fear? Towards him? Okay, maybe. Fear of him, why? What's he going to do to me? going to destroy me or kill me or, you know, condemn me forever. So the fear of God we have as believers is not this fear, don't smite me, God. It's a fear of I worship in holiness of who you, in the fullness of who you are, in your holiness. I humble myself. I lift you up. I'm fearful of you, God, because I believe you who you are. I'm not afraid of you, right? I'm not afraid of you because I'm in you. I'm in Christ. So I fear you and I revere you and I honor you, but an enemy of God fears God because I I don't know what you're going to do to me. I'm fearful you're going to hurt me or harm me. 
And so here, when this blessing comes out, hey, because you've been justified by faith, you have peace with God, now you can rejoice in God. When you see the holiness of God, it doesn't cause fear like, oh, he's going to smite me and consume me and condemn me. It causes great joy to say, man, that's my God. And that's how amazing my God is. And I get to live my life for him. So it brings up a whole different emotion from us when we go from being outside of the will of God, outside of the person of Christ as an enemy of God, to in Christ, justified by faith, now I rejoice in God. We see him in his holiness and we rejoice. Yes, we still have a fear of God, but as enemies fear their foe, we don't fear that way. Right? We don't fear as an enemy fears their foe, but as a child reveres his father. We don't fear as an enemy fears their foe, but as a child reveres their father. And so I pray that's an encouragement to you. We're going to stop there. Uh, Next week, we'll get into the rest of the chapter, verses 12 through 21. And so it went a little over. Um, But again, I pray it's an encouragement to you. Take time, look through the notes. Again, we, we covered 11 verses in like a half hour. Okay, obviously we didn't break down every single word and all of that. So maybe you would spend time this week going a little deeper in some of that. Maybe there's a verse or a point among those 12 things that jumped out to you a little more. And maybe you'd spend some time studying that out on your own. We encourage that, obviously. And so, but let's do this. We'll go ahead and uh, close in prayer. But before that, um, any comments or thoughts speaking to what we talked about tonight? Anything that jumped out to you? Any comments or thoughts before we go ahead and pray? Questions, comments, thoughts? Yes, Kathy. I was wondering when you were talking about the trials, I think I think a lot of times we just try and get through them. Sure. And I, I really think I mean, I know after going through a significant one in our life, we or I realized probably most of us that we need to rather than we didn't want we don't want to waste the trial. Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah. And, and just that it changes our view of what is, God is doing in our life. And then we're not so anxious to get the trial over with. It's like, Lord, what are you showing us through this? That's really good. Yeah. Um, so that, that would be that's just something I was thinking. Yeah. Well, I think that's true. A lot of us try to just get through. Let me just get out the other side. But I love what you said there. Actually going through it with the purpose and intent of God, what are you trying to reveal to me so that after this is over or even during, you'll be glorified and others will be blessed. That's awesome. Not to just endure it, but to embrace it. I like that. I'm going to have to steal that. I'm gonna, that's going to be... If you guys hear that on a Sunday morning, act totally surprised. Wow, that was so powerful. I've never heard such good preaching in my life. Okay. So uh, anyone else? Questions, comments, or thoughts before we get dismissed? All right. Well, awesome night, guys. I pray it's been an encouragement to you to get into God's Word. Uh, Don't wait until Wednesday to get back in God's Word. Uh, Spend some time in it every day as God gives you opportunity. Um, It's not about how much you read, okay? It's not about how many verses you read. It's about just being in the Word of God and just enjoying the relationship. And so uh, let's pray, and we'll ask God to give us a great night tonight. Father, we do thank you for the revelation of your Word. We thank you that when you decided to reveal yourself to us. You, you made it clear. Uh, you made your love and your character clear to us. You made it known that even though we have sinned and fallen and broken your law, 
that you made it clear that your desire, your, your desire is to, to save us, to redeem us, to restore us. And I thank you that we can read from your word as a standard what exactly that looks like. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to guess or left with just a wish. And I hope I'll get into heaven when I die. But we can have a confident guarantee, a hope that is secure in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so thank you for that. Thank you for that assurance you give unto us. Father, we pray that we would enjoy the peace that we have before you, that we would enjoy the relationship that when we were sinners, you died for us, and that we put our faith and trust in you and you alone, that you will justify us by faith through Jesus Christ, and we can have a peace with God that will allow us to rejoice in you, not to be fearful of you, but to fear and revere you as our Heavenly Father. Help us to walk in that way this week. Help us to look for opportunities. And when they present themselves, by your grace, to initiate conversation, to share the gospel, and to make disciples, and that you would be glorified and others would be blessed. Father, go with us now, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.